Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. Buddhism is one of the big things that has made an impact in the West. So one of the, the most powerful sets of practices and ideas that developed in Asia that have really fundamentally impacted people in the West. But as we point out, the danger is a lot of these ideas have been so domesticated that we're really not taking them seriously for the kind of radical vision that they hold. And indeed, one of the standard ways that we'll do this is that we'll take these techniques of things like meditation, for example, and say, well, the reason I meditate is to calm myself so that I can get closer to my real self. And this will enable me to be more happy with who I am, to learn to love myself more, to embrace myself more, and to stop being so angry that I just am the sort of person that I am. So in other words, meditation is a way of kind of calming ourselves and learning to love ourselves better. Now, the irony here, of course, is meditation was developed to do the precise opposite. The goal of meditation was to say, this self that we think we have is, and I'll use again the, the terminology from Chinese philosophy too, amidst these sets of patterns and ruts that we've fallen into. And you meditate to break that. The goal is to break the self. And those who go in to do meditation thinking, well, this will teach me to calm myself and love myself more, often find it a very frightening experience because these techniques were designed to do the precise opposite. And if, on the contrary, you take them as that, that my goal is to break these patterns and ruts, then they are incredibly powerful. And they really are offering the kind of fundamental challenge that I think makes them so powerful and exciting. Confucius said, At age 15, I set my intentions upon studying. At 30, I established myself in society. At 40, I freed myself of delusions. At 50, I understood the mandates of heaven. At 60, I could hear with clarity. And at age 70, what my heart desired and what was right came into alignment. Hello, how are you? And you're very welcome to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's great to have your company this evening. Okay, here's a question for you. Does strength lie in weakness? And is it through vulnerability and not overt power that we can affect change and influence? Well, on tonight's show, we're going to investigate that question through the unique lens of Confucius, Mencius, Laozi, and other great Chinese philosophers and explore a radical, if not totally counterintuitive, perspective on how to live well. This evening, we're going to meet with two devotees of Chinese philosophy, one a journalist and author, the other an academic, whose new book, The Path, A New Way to Think About Everything, offers the reader, yes you and me, a practical and accessible range of ideas and perspectives that will radically alter how we live in the world, how we feel it and how we see it. So how do we break free from our patterned habitual responses and how do we develop new sides of ourselves? In The Path, A New Way to Think About Everything, Professor Michael Pewitt and Christine Grosslow question how do we plan for anything, decide on anything, if we live in a capricious world? And right, living in a capricious world means accepting that we do not live within a stable moral cosmos that will always reward people for what they do. We should not deny that real tragedies do happen. But at the same time, we should always expect to be surprised and learn to work with whatever befalls us. 
If we can continue this work, even when tragedies come our way, we can begin to accept the world as unpredictable and impossible to determine perfectly. We can go into each situation resolved to be the best human being we can be, not because of what we get out of it, but simply to affect others around us for the better, regardless of the outcome. Pewitt and Groslow go on to advise. When we rationally make big life decisions based on the idea that the world is coherent, we assume a clear-cut situation, clear-cut possibilities, a stable self, unchanging emotions and an unchanging world. But these things aren't givens at all. By making concrete, defined plans, you are actually being abstract. A future self that you imagine based on who you think you are now, even though you, the world and your circumstances will change. Wise words indeed. Hello, my name is Michael Pewitt, and I teach Chinese history and Chinese philosophy at Harvard University. Hello, my name is Christine Grosslow, and I'm a journalist and author. I also have a PhD in East Asian history from Harvard University. Michael, really well done in the book. It's a very stimulating read, very engaging. It's an excellent and very clear introduction to Chinese philosophy, culture and history. I might start off with a big wide open question. What has Chinese philosophy got to say about the art of living? And what does it reveal or how can it help us in how we're living today in our, I suppose, very fragmented, fast paced, anxious ridden lives, really? Yes, I think Chinese philosophy really offers a fundamental challenge to a lot of things we take for granted. Um, Just to give one obvious example. So we think, well, to be a good person, I should look within, try to find myself, find my true self, and then be sincere and authentic to my true self so I can live my life on my own terms according to what's best for me. Now, this sounds great, but to this, many Chinese philosophers would say, maybe that's not only wrong, it's potentially dangerous. They would say, well... What if, on the contrary, we are very messy selves, and we're messy selves that kind of fall into various patterns and ruts in our behaviors with each other? And if that's true, the goal isn't to look within and find yourself. The goal is to actually break these patterns, break these ruts, to use a term they will, they will refer to, to overcome the self and try to begin the process of becoming a better person. So I think they offer a very fundamentally different view of what it means to live a good life, and I think they're really onto something. Do you think, Michael, we get in the way of ourselves? And within all of that, we, we, I suppose we can sometimes take our beliefs for granted and our sense of who and what we are for granted. I think that's beautifully put. I think we absolutely get in the way of ourselves. And the danger is always that we take for granted, as you said, who we are. And that leads us to become complacent. So we'll just say, oh, I just am the sort of person who has a bad temper. I'm just the sort of person who gets angry at little things. And this leads us to be complacent, whereas they would say, on the contrary, that's not you. That's the set of patterns and ruts you've fallen into, and it's all changeable. And they would say, think of the self as something you're working to build through your everyday interactions and relationships. Now, I wasn't expecting, Michael, to get a bit of Nietzsche in your book on Chinese philosophy. It was a very welcome <laughs> surprise. He's, he's one of my favourite philosophers, I have to say, and he offers so much. But there are some aspects of what he says and how that, I suppose, has been in relationship to Chinese philosophy. You have a lovely quote where uh, Nietzsche says, if our senses were fine enough, we would perceive the slumbering cliff as a dancing chaos. We would see the heart of everything. We would see it all so clearly. It's magical, really, but it also relates to where Chinese philosophy is coming from, doesn't it? Very much so. 
So one of the big things they will argue, just as we were mentioning the notion of the self really constrains us, they also would point out we have a very restricted way of thinking about the world, viewing the world, experiencing life on a daily basis. And part of the goal, they would say, is to train ourselves to see more of what is going on around us, to actually see, as Nietzsche would say, the incredible complexities of the world around us, a complexity that we often close ourselves off from with these very stable visions of who we are and what the world really is. So, Christine, I might throw you a very wide open question, if you wouldn't mind. How do we or what does it take to feel alive or certainly to feel more alive in the world today? And how can Chinese philosophy help us? Well, I think that um, one of the things that I found so compelling when we were writing the chapter on a text called The Inward Training, which is not very well known in the West, is that we tend to sort of think of our lives in terms of disparate experiences. You know, going out for coffee with a friend makes us feel alive. You know, going to a yoga class makes us feel alive. But it's sort of this separated experience from the rest of our lives. And the inward training and indeed the other texts as well that are in our book really emphasize instead the importance of cultivating that feeling of aliveness in every moment, which could sound a little bit woo-woo, but it really is, I think, a very compelling and real notion. We do have a tendency to make distinctions in our lives um, and to think of what we can do to sort of make ourselves feel better with an isolated experience rather than seeing our lives as a continuum and something that we have to work on in every moment and can work on in every moment. So if we look at life from a more connected or interconnected way, we have more meaning, is that it? I think, yes, we have more meaning. We have more potential to really feel engaged in everything that we do so that even the most mundane things, things that we might think of as a chore, a slog, you know, something that we just have to get through, have the potential to be exciting. And that sort of feeling of excitement is what gives us a feeling of vitality. But that kicks back on responsibility and sometimes people make extraordinary um, decisions or steps and very brave steps in their lives and sometimes they just do small little stuff. But they Mm -hmm. think, oh, well, I can get away with this or this isn't so significant. But by looking at the interconnectedness of things that you you realise then that everything matters and that all these little small little steps or all these little small little naughty naughties also add up. Exactly. And in fact, that's sort of what I think is so empowering about the texts that we explore in our book, because they talk about changes that you can make in your life that are very doable, that can start with very small things. And I think that it can be very daunting when thinking of making changes in your life, when you think of it as some sort of big, great decision or task that you have to engage in. And rather, if you think of it as the tiniest of steps and understand that great changes do come from the small things we do, because that is, after all, what our lives are composed of, is the small things we do, then I think that it is actually a more freeing way to look at what change really entails. So, Michael, what exactly is the way or the path in the Chinese wisdom tradition? We've got so many different sources and interesting texts, but what does it reveal to you? What does it mean to you? What's it all about? Yes. So often we think of a path as something that's already there. So you're going through the woods and there's a path that you simply follow. And what's intriguing about the Chinese notion, and the term is the Tao, often translated otherwise as the way, the notion is really we are actively constructing a path by the way we live our lives. So think of the way as kind of everything, everything and its endless flux and interconnection. And we're a part of that too. 
And if we're living our lives complacently and, and not trying to grow as a human being, then the danger is we fall into these ruts that will define our lives, that become the paths we unintentionally are following. If, on the contrary, we're trying to work to develop ourselves and grow, we're actually, in a sense, forging a path as we go, one that affects, by definition, us, but even those around us and the world around us. And they would say the more actively we're engaged in the world, the more we are really, ironically, following the way, because that means we're fully involved in being part of this way. Do you think if Confucius was around today, he'd be shocked by levels of complacency? I think he truly would be. (laughs) This was one of his big concerns, and I think he would look around us at a society that thinks we've created these liberated individuals living lives on their own, and I think he would say it's shocking, on the contrary, how we live these very complacent lives, kind of repeating these same patterns and ruts, and not working on them because we are convinced that we are just who we are, and therefore we don't need to actually transform ourselves. Do you think in some way we have failed to understand his message? Because Confucius would possibly be the most famous Chinese philosopher from ancient times. And there are so many, you know, so many pictures and so many of his sayings are even put on T-shirts, everything. But it strikes me, and certainly from going through and from reading through the book, that some of how his message has been either interpreted, that in some way it's been distorted or maybe misunderstood. What do you make of that? Do you think that's fair? I think it's completely fair, and I agree with you completely. We tend to think of Confucius as sort of the perfect example of a traditional thinker who simply would tell us endlessly follow rituals and do what traditions and conventions tell you to do, and that's how you can become a good person. The intriguing thing, of course, is when you read these texts about Confucius, the message is really the exact opposite. The concern is precisely that our danger as human beings is that we become these complacent creatures, And things like rituals are there to break us from our usual complacent ways of being in the world. So the notion of ritual here is that in a ritual, you for a brief moment become a different person, interacting with those around you in a different way. And we do this not to become socialized into a way of being, but it's the opposite. We do these to actually break our usual patterns and begin the process of growing as a human being. Now, Michael, one aspect of Confucianism that I wasn't really aware of and I found it really interesting and got me thinking about all sorts of things was his idea that we have to let go of the mentality of the true self or what is our authentic self and stop self-diagnosing or labelling ourselves in search for this sense of authenticity. It's very radical, isn't it? Extremely. I think in many ways this is one of the ideas that cuts most against our fundamental assumptions. Because as you said, we tend to think that's precisely how to become a liberated individual is precisely to look within, be authentic and sincere to your true self, be true to who you are, embrace yourself, love yourself for who you are. And here you have a thinker that would say the danger of that is what you're loving and embracing are simply these patterns and ruts you've fallen into. And the goal, therefore, is not to just accept yourself and love yourself for who you are. The goal is to break these patterns and learn to grow as a human being and become a different and hopefully much, much better person. Christine, Confucius believed in starting with the small and it's a very empowering, as you say, very empowering philosophy and it's very comforting and there's lots of consolation in that because you feel you can enact change in your life. But if we're starting with the small, how can we break these habitual patterns of behaviour? How can we liberate ourselves from all these daily rituals that we do and obsess about? Well, I'll start with a very small example, actually. 
going back to that idea of the true self, I think the true authentic, the, the sort of notion that we have to be true, we have to be authentic, can lead us really to behave in ways that feel true to ourselves, but are not actually allowing us to live up to our better side. So for instance, we actually do engage in what Confucius would call an as-if ritual. Whenever we're walking down the street and we're sort of stewing over a problem we're having in our minds, and then we happen to run into somebody that we know, chances are that we already know that it's a good idea to sort of greet them. We'll just sort of, we don't even think about it. We'll just greet them. We'll say, you know, how are you doing? Have a nice chat. And then we're on our way. And in that moment when we have greeted them, we have actually not been acting according to our authentic true self. Because if we were, that would have been the self that was stewing and then we would have burst out in a litany of complaints or problems. Instead, we greeted them. We sort of broke out of that self for a moment to greet them and say hi nicely and then moved on. And the idea of an as-if ritual is that through very small things that we do like this, we're actually, by not acting according to our true self, we are actually cultivating a different and a better self. And that is a very small example of something that is, you know, very doable that we do all the time, in fact, but that we're not actually aware of. Michael, do you think we're malleable? Because from reading through the book there, there is a presumption in some way from these great Chinese philosophers that we can self-train ourselves and that we can massage ourselves into becoming better people in some way. Yes, they are very convinced, and I'm equally convinced that they're right about this, that we are much more malleable than we think we are. So we tend to think of ourselves as these stable people. Um, you know, I just am who I am, and I should just accept myself for who I am. And the same about the world, right? Other people just are who they are, and I just have to you know, somehow relate to them given who I am and given who they are. Now, these philosophers would say, no, all of those are simply patterns and ruts we've fallen into. We've become stable because we've become complacent, but stable, therefore, in a very negative sense. And on the contrary, recognize we are incredibly messy creatures and therefore highly malleable. And if we work on breaking these ruts, we change ourselves to degrees that are really quite surprising. And over time, they would say, and I think they're right about this, by doing these little rituals, by doing these little things that break us from our standard ruts and patterns, you slowly start becoming a different person. And more importantly, of course, if you're doing so to actually learn to connect with those around you and build better relationships, you start becoming an incomparably better human being as well. So we're highly malleable in both a dangerous way that we can fall into these patterns and ruts, but also in a wonderful way in that we are capable of training ourselves to be better. Now, the Chinese philosopher Mensis, who I think was a student of Confucius, or certainly was his greatest scholar, has so much to say about how we're living in our world. And he talks a lot about how all these plans that we set for ourselves, that ultimately they're redundant because they're limiting us in so many different ways. He saw the world as very volatile, very fluid, and I suppose very unstable. And as such, that we need to play to that and not limit ourselves in how we understand the volatility of life and that to move with all the changes. It's very visionary and there's comfort in it in some ways, but it's also very kind of shocking, isn't it? Very shocking. I mean, we tend to think that just as I'm a stable person with a clear personality and a clear defined 
set of qualities, my good qualities and my bad qualities, and we equally tend to think the world is relatively stable too. And so the way I make long-term plans is decide what is best for me, given who I am, and how would I best fit into the world. So you know, a career decision being an obvious example, given who I am, my strengths and weaknesses, how do I fit into that world, and what's the career in which I could sort of play to my best sides? Now, this, again, sounds great, but Mencius would indeed, as you said, argue, no, 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 we're utterly unstable creatures, and the world around us is highly capricious. And as you said, that's a very scary thought. But the flip side of the scariness is to say, all of this is changeable in a good way, too. And therefore, think of your life not as, who am I and how do I fit into this world? Think of it rather as a constantly changing world and a constantly changing self. And you're constantly, therefore, trying to work with these changes and trying to grow as a human being, given all the constant changes around you. And as scary as it sounds to say, you know, we're unstable and it's a capricious world, he would argue on the contrary, that's precisely how we can grow as human beings, is recognizing that capriciousness and therefore constantly trying to work with it and grow with it and alter with it. So we're all living under this illusion of stability. And then if you think of life that way, you know, it's liberating, it's frightening, it's lots of different things. But it also makes you think about whether it's your relationships and whether sense of loss and bereavement are breakups, that we need to tap into the unpredictability of life and that we need to accept that there are changes and transformations sweeping through our lives all the time. So how do we tap into all of that? Yes, and it's perfectly put. I mean, we tend to think it's a stable world and then sadly, horrible things will happen that will destroy this. So there will be a breakup. Most horribly, there'll be a death. And these are sort of horrible moments that break this for a moment, but we tend to think, but we'll try to rebuild our lives as it once was anyway, because we should be as stable as possible. Now, they would say, no, on the contrary, and again, it will sound scary, but the flip side of it is it's very empowering. Think of change as just inevitable. It is an inherent part of the world. Things are changing constantly. And if you take that seriously, what it means is how we live depends on how we both respond to all of these changes and work with them, including all the horrible ones, the the breakups and even the horrible things like death. It's how we respond to these, how we grow from these, how we work with others through these changes. That's what really defines us as a human being. And as scary as that sounds to say, it also means the world really is one in which we are inherently a part of creating by our daily activities, by our relationships, all of which, again, are constantly changing. Michael, I'm going to throw you some a quote from Lao Tzu from the Tao Te Ching, which is uh, an immense read and um, so poetic, so meaningful. It's a lot of things to a lot of different people, I think, in a lot of yeah. different ways. And you, you, you sprinkle some exquisite quotes throughout the book, which are a real added bonus now, I have to say. A thing incohate and complete, born before heaven and earth. That's beautiful, but what does it really mean? Yes. So the Lao Tzu is, as you said, one of the most complex and brilliant works, I think, in our entire world literature. And what it will talk about is this notion that we see the world around us as a series of stable things that make perfect sense according to our way of understanding. And it would say, what if that's all wrong? What if, on the contrary, everything, both in an original sense, but also in an everyday common sense, think of everything as inherently interrelated. And 
everything that exists, therefore, originally arose from a total, as they would say, nothingness, which means lack of thingness, um, total interrelatedness. So think of the beginning of the universe, for example. It would be, as we would say, a big bang in which originally there was nothingness, no distinctions between things. Then from that, you get the universe born in which things are differentiated. And think of everyday life this way. In other words, think of everyday life as the more we perceive the world as being distinct, stable things, is the more we're removing ourselves from the way. The more we see the world as constantly interrelated and things as emerging from this absolute interrelatedness is the more we can both accurately see what's going on, but more importantly, work with that interconnectedness. Now, this sounds incredibly mystical, but the exciting thing about the Lao Tzu is it would equally say it's very practical. It's actually, you begin thinking of everything from relationships to political theory to how you relate to, to others in the work office differently if you actually begin thinking of the world this way. It's an amazing text. Yeah, it's very transformative because essentially what it's saying is that you've to hold on to the tension of opposites and possibly contradictions as well and accept the relationship between it. It's very mysterious, isn't it? Very. And that's beautifully put. I mean, we'll tend to think in these clear dualisms of good and bad, right and wrong, this and that. And this will say, well, actually, everything is inherently interrelated. And what we're deeming as good or bad depends entirely on the context, and therefore focus on that context and work with the context, as opposed to trying to stick on these very stable labels that we think will define us and and define how we should act in the world. When you read memoirs, Christine, of great political leaders or some um, amazing entrepreneurs or visionaries, the Tao Te Ching as a manual for life, it certainly has inspired lots of different creatives, leaders, lots of people with acumen and insight, hasn't it? It has, yes. It's a very influential text. What does it mean to you in how you're living and working in the world? It's very interesting. I think that it really, for me, it confirms the fact that um, the way that in our culture we tend to think of influence is actually wrong. In America, at least, we think of influence as coming from being assertive, from putting yourself out there, from sort of, you know, having your say and, and being dominant. And the Tao Te Ching really, as Michael so wonderfully put it, by describing the world as inherently incredibly interrelated, it helps a reader to sort of reevaluate how they think about power, influence, um, where those things actually come from. Instead of seeing life as a series of power balances, it advocates instead seeing that um, working on the context, as Michael said, is really how we have influence over others. So, for instance, in a power situation where you're dealing with other people, say you're in a classroom and you've been taught that the way to sort of get the respect from your classmates and your teacher is by being the top dog, by being, you know, having your hand in all the time, sort of having the right answer all the time and making sure that your opinion is out there for everyone to be heard. The reality of that, though, is that what actually happens is that by being that sort of a person, being assertive and dominant, you actually are um, failing to work on the context. You're actually working against yourself. You're 